And a very good morning to you. We're live from London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my panellists Latika Burke and John Everard will join me around the table to dissect the week's main stories. Uh, John, you're fresh off the mail. How was the coronation yesterday? Well, my bit was a bit damp. I, I thought the ceremony as, 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 as such went really well. I was very impressed by how it all hung together. Uh, I was a bit disappointed they had to cut back the fly pass, but it was good. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll also get the latest from Turkey from Monocle's Istanbul correspondent Hannah Lucinda Smith about the upcoming elections there and we'll check in with our man in the Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in Belgrade, where the shock is still reverberating from last week's mass shootings. I'll also tell you a tale of two regions in Bosnia where controversy is king. It's the 7th of May 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. Well, a very good morning to you, John Everard and Lichtika Burke. How are we this morning, John? I'm delighted to see that you're still wearing your inflatable crown. Uh, yes, I, it took some time to get it off, uh, but I, I decided to take off my um, amazing all-Union Jack shirt. What? <laughs> Were you wearing an all-Union Jack shirt yesterday? No, I just said that for the radio. Okay, that's fine. Because, I mean, this is the glorious thing about radio. You could you could absolutely uh, fool us. Um, I, I, I do have a Union Jack You top. don't. When and you I, admit when, to it? Well, I had three. What? Oh, wow. Well, you see, when I lived here in, um, what, 2002, when I was 17 years old, it was the World Cup, you might remember. And so, you know... I was working as a, as a you know, junior burger in some company out in Wembley. I earned £16,000 a year, so I used to jump the tube. Sorry, TFL. Um, and the only thing I could afford to show my love of, of this country that I absolutely adored and this city I love living in were like this really cheap UK Union Jack T-shirts. And they're terrible because they're super low cut, really inappropriate to wear. But I have kept them all my life. And do you wear them occasionally? Well, last year I did crack one out because (laughs) I went to the Jubilee concert. So I wore it under a jacket to that and then to a Jubilee party. And I'm going to the Coronation concert tonight. So my dilemma is whether... I revive my 17-year-old self. There is zero dilemma here. You're wearing <laughs> it. it. And you've got three. So John's borrowing one and I'm trying <laughs> the other one. Right, yeah. John, you might look very fetching in it. I, I mean, agree. Are you You're going so to, kind. Are you going to the coronation concert tonight? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. I've okay. done my coronation for the time. Now, you have done your thing. So I'm now sitting in a room with two people. Um, one of whom is going this evening. One of whom went yesterday. We will, we will have to explore the whys and wherefores of that. Because I must admit, when I found out, John, that you had actually stood in the rain to watch it all happen yesterday an eyebrow was raised because from the comfort of my mother's sofa watching it yesterday we were thinking what fool has decided to go outside and stand 20 deep in the rain to watch a big carriage well there were an awful lot of us fools out there and it was pretty crowded i i I think i mean yeah why do i do these things uh i i think because i wanted to be part of the history i wanted to be part of the event uh i mean because of what i've done in the past i've been privileged to sit in meetings where big decisions are made and you know when when history books come to be written you know you can point to the paragraph and say yeah I was there I, I saw that okay. and, I, and this was another of those I wanted to actually be there see the king go past John but, do you actually see much I've always wondered this when people are stuck in big you crowds and big events I was there at six o'clock in the morning and I was close enough because I'm, I'm incredibly tall but say how see. tall are you I'd be 29 what is it what's that in old money I have no idea okay because I'm one sit one meter 60 and Latiki you've never struck me as being particularly tall I'm 163 centimetres. Okay, you've got so I'm a three little taller than you, Emma. But I wonder whether Latika and I fall into the camp of. Yeah. 
We're not going to see a thing unless you take the stepladders. Yes. Yeah, there are a few people like that, and a few people came with stepladders. It was kind of antisocial. Also, of course, uh, the... <laughs> because there's so much social about packing thousands oh, deep into it, the mole. It's a deeply social occasion. You, you know what, what what Brits are like when we queue. Everybody all stands in their own little world. On, on the coronation queues, lots of queues. Queues for coffee. Queues for the lavatory. Inevitably, uh, people talked to each other, opened up, and had lots of meaningful conversations about how you got there, how you enjoyed the coronation, and so on and so forth. Uh, the big hazard, though, wasn't people on stepladders. It was umbrellas. And mm. you, you you could always tell yes. when something was about to happen because suddenly you could see the, the umbrellas went down and the mobile phones went up because you can't actually hold an umbrella and a mobile phone at the same time. Lisa, I've never seen anybody. You can. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's crack the mode. But did you see anything? Oh, yes. I, what did I, you I, see? I, I saw all the military parade. I saw the, the coach going to Westminster Abbey uh, with you know, King about to be crowned inside it. And did you see him? Oh, yes, I saw him. I was close enough for and that. Was it, and, and was it wonderful? Did I, you feel in the presence of, of you know, history? I don't know whether he did or not. Oh, him, you mean? Uh, I, I think uh, it's not so much being in the presence of you know, somebody amazing. It's just, as I say, being at the event. And, yes, I did feel that. Okay. Yeah. I I felt that from, well, marginally from the, from again, from my mother's sofa with a gin and tonic in one hand, coronation chicken sandwich in the other. And my mum, bless her, needs the subtitles. And the subtitles were so big, they obscured everybody's (laughs) faces for all the key moments. So that's, that was my experience of the coronation. Oh, and my mum used to be an antique dealer. So she would look, she would literally say, look at the candlesticks on the altar. You could get a bomb for them. She'd be whispering like what she would do with all the bell pulls and the robes and what have you, how she'd chop them up and turn them into so your mother or, is basically um, Jean Valjean before his redemption. Brilliant. This is wonderful. Yes. Um, John, I, I don't know how you separate this, but I was really surprised at actually how rapturous the crowds were. Do you yeah. think there was affection for Charles there or affection for the historic moment that you described? I think there was a lot of both. Uh, it was interesting because I, I, I couldn't, of course, get into the Westminster Abbey. I, I watched the, the ceremony itself on the big screen in St. James's Park. And the crowd broke into cheers when, when the, the king and queen arrived, sure, but also when the uh, the prince and princess of Wales arrived. Mm. Uh, complete silence when Harry walked in. Oh. Interesting. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. So I mean, no booze, just silent. Absolutely. That, that's very British, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Let, yeah. Let's um, let's come back to this in a little while because I'm sort of keen to have to sort of examine what the the world's press are saying about yesterday's uh, event, which is something rather amazing. Could because generally speaking, we don't cover other people's coronations, but this is obviously something that the rest of the world is super, super interested in. But first, uh, before we do that, let's go to Istanbul, where we can join Hannah Lucinda-Smith there. Because, uh, Hannah, very good morning to you. It's seven days until Turkey goes to the polls, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I've been spending this weekend doing something quite different. Both the uh, President Erdogan and his opposition rival, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu holding rallies in Istanbul this weekend. It was Kılıçdaroğlu's turn yesterday. Hundreds of thousands of people turned out on a parade ground in the Asian side of Istanbul to see him speak, and also alongside all the other uh, party leaders who've joined in his coalition. Uh, Today, President Erdogan is going to speak on the European side of the city. I think we can expect something 
quite different in recent days. He's been really kind of upping the acerbic rhetoric, accusing people who vote for the opposition of supporting terrorism, slurs against LGBT people. Yeah, really, as we enter the kind of last seven days, I think the, the kind of rhetoric is going to hot up on both sides. What's interesting is that a lot of the, the newspapers, I mean, if you just look at Reuters' website, it talks about uh, Kilic Dorolu emerging from the shadow of Erdogan, that for the first time, arguably, there is a sense that this man could give Erdogan a real run for his money. It certainly feels like that. I mean, I think for the first time in a generation, the opposition is really sensing that victory is in its grasp. Something really telling. Last week, the opposition uh, put out a new campaign slogan. Um, so far, the polls have been predicting that uh, Kilic Tarolo and Erdogan about neck and neck, Kilic Tarolo just ahead, but the election likely to go to a second round. Now the opposition is pitching and saying, let's finish it in the first. They're really feeling this kind of energy behind them. Um, I think they were given a bit of a boost by the fact that a week and a half ago, Erdogan was taken ill on live TV, had to take three days off the campaign trail. He's looking quite old and quite frail. And Kilic Tarolo, even though he's five years older than Erdogan, is looking really lively on stage. He's taking a really different kind of tone. He's talking about you unity. Um, he's talking about democratisation. And you know, and he's also got these kind of uh, this young team around him, particularly the mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, who's 51. He's running as vice president. So he's on the campaign trail as well. It really does feel at the moment like the energy is with the opposition. How fair is the coverage in the media of all this? Well, in the mainstream media, not fair at all. Almost all of the newspapers and television channels are controlled by people loyal to President Erdogan. What the opposition is doing is it's really trying to take advantage of social media. Um, and it's posting, you know, full videos of all its rallies uh, on social media. They're getting you know, tens of millions of views. Now, it's really, really difficult, of course, to know how much that's kind of penetrating outside of the circle who are going to vote for the opposition anyway. But it's certainly true that over the years, as you know, the kind of media diversity has narrowed back um, and as you know, <clears throat> television channels have just become mouthpieces, less and less people in the broader society are sort of taking notice of traditional media. You know, it's very common to hear people say, OK, I, I haven't looked at a newspaper for years. They're all rubbish. So, you know, I think the, the, the two sides are you know, playing with different tools. They're fighting with different tools. Um, and clearly, you know, Erdogan does have really, really strong advantages, you know, not only in the media, also the amount of control that he has over uh, institutions like the electoral board, uh, over the courts, over the security services to a certain extent as well. And I think what everybody is really worried about, two things. Firstly, you know, if the opposition does win by a narrow margin, it's quite likely that Erdogan is likely to contest those results. That's what he did back in Istanbul in local elections in 2019. The second thing, if it goes to a second round and there'll be two weeks between those two rounds, I think people are quite worried about what might happen in that period. Will there be some kind of provocations? Will there be some kind of violence? So really, I think people are just desperate for next week to be over and for everything to be settled. And is anyone daring to mention that this could be the, the end of Erdogan? Yeah, absolutely. And, and here's an interesting thing about Turkey. It's very clearly not a, a functioning democracy anymore. It's also not a dictatorship in the sense of, say, Syria or Russia. You know, there is still you know, a measure in which you can talk about these things. You have to be very, very careful if you are uh, doing anything that Erdogan might deem as an insult, if you're digging too deeply into his financial affairs, things like that, if you're showing 
any kind of uh, what he might see as support for for parts of the opposition, Kurdish parts of the opposition particularly. Um, but, you know, there is uh, still, you know, an opposition media sector that's managed to survive through social media and through the internet. Um, there are still Turkish journalists um, who are in exile, who are doing things like making podcasts, which are quite widely listened to. So there is still a space for these kind of discussions. And there is also, uh, conversely, the, the, the fear by an awful lot of the rest of the world that if Erdogan does retain power, it will not be done in a pleasant way. But also the international ramifications of this could be could be grave, couldn't they? Because we could have louder calls in Europe to formally end Turkey's EU accession process. We could have rising tensions between Ankara and Athens and uh, also the issue of Cyprus. I mean, a presence of Erdogan in government as for, for the foreseeable future is not a stable prospect, is it? It's not. I mean, he he is a destabilizing presence, and that's a problem because Turkey is so important, particularly you know now um, with the war in Ukraine. Turkey sits right at the heart of the kind of security concerns, um, you know, the things that that keep U.S. presidents, European leaders up at night. He's he's a very important leader. But more than that, you know, Erdogan has been something something of an example to other leaders who've used his methods of taking a democracy, coming to the coming to power through the ballot box, and then taking a democracy and kind of turning it inside out, finding its weaknesses and finding its loopholes, taking over you know, media outlets, you know, right across Europe, places like Hungary, Serbia, also to an extent, you know, leaders like Jair Bolsonaro, Donald Trump, they're following the same methods. And I think, you know, it's going to be important more broadly as well. If the opposition can defeat Erdogan at the ballot box, it's going to be the first time this kind of leader at this stage of a kind of anti-democratic takeover, you know, having taken over the courts and, and things like that. It would be the first time that the opposition, an opposition has managed to unseat a leader like that democratically. On the other hand, if Erdogan wins another five years by means fair, almost probably foul, a, it's going to mean another five years of him extending his control over Turkey, doing away with the last vestiges of, of democracy. But also it's going to kind of give more support to those kind of other leaders who really look at Erdogan as, you know, one of their own and, and somebody whose methods they're following. Hannah Lucinda-Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Istanbul. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Joining me in the studio, Latika Burke and John Everard. Um, John, you were nodding along to, to, to Latika's point about just how destabilising this all is. Yes, that's right. Uh, and I, I agree entirely with her analysis at the end there about the way that Erdogan acts as a model for other, other strongmen in the region and, and beyond. Uh, I, my big worry uh, is that uh, not that Erdogan contests the results, but he simply falsifies them. Uh, I mean, I, I think he may have sufficient control over the electoral board simply to arrange for the right result to come out regardless of how many votes were cast each way. I always find it astonishing when it comes to Turkey about just how much of an influence it has in so many parts of geopolitics that it can has influence in NATO, it has influence with the European Union, it has contacts with Russia, it has contacts with the Middle East and and despite the fact that it is not a country that has an enormous GDP or an enormous sort of role in, in you know, if you look in the pecking order of the 10 most wealthy countries, Turkey's not in it. Yet it. it's got, it, <clears throat> they can meddle around in everything. 
And look at its geography. I mean, it's just so strategically important to so many critical parts of the world. But I was certainly nodding along to the point she made there about um, strongmen being able to copy this model, because I think that's exactly what you're seeing take place in Israel. And these are the very same concerns being levelled against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, that he has essentially come in benefiting from a, a very free and fair and open democratic system, now using those very same tools to turn democracy against the people and shore up his own position. We can only hope that the Israeli people uh, are stronger than, than those in Turkey in being able to defeat that. Um, but let's see what happens in a week's time. There's certainly a lot riding on this. And also, of course, the future of the war in Ukraine. You know, this has huge implications what happens there. We'll come back to Ukraine in a little while, but first let's go back to uh, looking at the papers and seeing the coverage of the uh, the coronation yesterday of King Charles and Queen Queen Camilla. Anyone here not quite got Queen Camilla yet, or are you are you on board with Queen Camilla now? I'm on board. With Queen Camilla, you're on, yes. you're on board with the whole game, aren't you? Just this about, is yes. this is fine. Yes. Uh, Latika, you on board with Queen Camilla? Um, look, I have been, but I must say I was not impressed with uh, her conduct during the ceremony yesterday. I no. thought she was a little glib. I don't know if it was nerves. I don't know if she just thought the whole thing was a little ludicrous, like all of us did. Um, but all of us were being required to suspend uh, belief and, and take this very seriously, and I think the country did. And so to see her kind of smiling away as she's doing the most solemn parts of the ceremony, being being crowned queen, I didn't think went down particularly well. I mean, I, I had think what, what got me was that she was smiling, and perhaps in appropriate moments. I agree, but when she was crowned, she fiddled with her crown, mm. and at a moment when you just got to sit there still for Correct. maybe five minutes, could she not have waited? You know, could that itch not have been just ignored for five you, minutes? Uh, just to place it in, in context, uh, Camilla has a little more hair than you do, John. Most people do. So most people. Would probably I I felt for her at that moment, but there were great crowd cries from the from the sofa. Will you just sit still? Yes, it was astonishing, wasn't it? It's a very you had one job moment, yes. you know. <laughs> and I don't think she did it properly yesterday. Uh, I'm very sad to say because I think Camilla has been um, vilified for a long time, uh, some of it unfairly, very unfairly. And I think she is a very good. Uh, soulmate for Charles. It's good to see those two having a happy marriage at last. But it's also a little hard for the country to be fully on board with with Queen Camilla. So I think the expectations for her were even higher than those of Charles. And it's sad to see her fail at that moment. It was that moment that you thought, this is when you step up Mm. to the job that you you have been working towards for, Uh, for arguably for decades. Absolutely. The entire nation, large parts of the entire world are watching you. This is not the moment to start fiddling under your crown band. And I, th- I think it was particularly uh, noticeable the contrast between Camilla's conduct in the ceremony and Charles's. Charles, I thought, struck just the right note of seriousness and approachability, which Camilla didn't quite get. No, I thought the, the solemnity and the magnitude of what was happening and unfolding and the ancientness of it all and the sim- symbolism of it all, that was all written on Charles's face. I don't think you could say the same for Camilla. And I might say it was also very evident on William, on on Kate's face as well. You know, it was very clear who was really seized by the moment and the enormity of what's happening. And yes, it's all very ludicrous, some parts of this ceremony. And I think think that's well canvassed across papers in, in the world, across the world today. 
But it is also quite special. It is very special because it is one of those moments and, and, and there was that artificiality about it, wasn't there? Because if you go to a play or an opera, you can often see this sort of being recreated every single day on the stages of the West End and of and, and of and wherever. And often if you see it in the opera pit, the conductor Antonio Papano is there as well. So this was like opera number two for anybody <laughs> who's a fan of that kind of stuff. But but though it was mentioned yesterday they had the historian um David Olasoga got on, on the television talking about the fact that this is an ancient ceremony that we were witness to. And it, we are not a country that does ceremony anymore here in the United Kingdom. We are not very religious anymore. We don't do ceremonies in the likes that you would have in Spain or Japan. There are not regular events which are to do with society, which bring us all together. But when we do do it, we do it in an absolutely extreme way. Would you say that, um, John? Yes, I think that's right. I, th- I think it's important to distinguish between being religious and doing ceremonies. The two are quite different things. Uh, you're right that we don't have the, the, the extent of ceremonies. I mean, the Catholic Church in Spain it does them not quite on a weekly basis, but very close to. Uh, ours only come up once in a while. I nevertheless think that ceremonies remain a very important part of British life. And I, I thought that the reaction to what was going on, when it, that, okay, you know, we were in many senses creating a fairy tale but the nation bought into this. They wanted that fairy tale to work. Uh, the, the power of that ceremony is still very much there. Would you agree with that? I mean, you've moved from Australia. I'm not quite sure how, how ceremonial Australia is. Not massively. Australia is far less ceremonial. It's also far more secular. One of the great shocks moving to, moving to the UK has been actually how much religion does play a part in ordinary life, how much it's part of the media. I mean, when I turned on Radio National in the morning and heard thought of the day given by religious leaders every morning, I'm kind of shocked that would never happen in Australia. That would be considered proselytising by a national broadcaster and it would absolutely not fly. But the monarchy is also the head of, you know, the monarch is the head of the Church of England. And what has really surprised me is how much of a normality there is about religion in the political sense, in the societal sense. I was very shocked to find that it's completely normal to ask people here, what mass do you go to on Christmas Day? I mean, people in Australia would be like, what? (laughs) You what, mate? Um, Who would be going to mass? You know, and I grew up in a very Catholic family. We did go to mass every weekend. But obviously, it's not something I do as an adult. Having said that, I think there is a distinction to be made between people who observe their religion daily or weekly in attending ceremonies and people who have faith as part of their life. And I thought one of the most illustrative demonstrations of this yesterday was when Rishi Sunak gets up as the first Hindu PM to read a Christian passage from a Christian Bible at the coronation of a monarch. Um, He leads his majesty's government and this guy leads the Church of England. And it's all happening in this hugely ancient building. I mean, that to me was quite mind-blowing and a testament to a Briton and a monarchy that really is adapting and evolving in a way that people don't fully appreciate because they see the monarchy as something of history, a bit foolish, a bit uh, of the past and something that doesn't really fit in modern day life. Well, I actually thought there was the point of it all. It's it's an interesting point that you raise there because it was one of the moments where introducing a diversity of faith had been a big point mm. to be made inside this this ceremony. Um, it's, it's funny, though, that if we are a more secular country um, and we 
don't do God in the way that we used to do God. Seeing these all, all these religious leaders was wonderful. But how do you actually incorporate people who don't have any faith into something which essentially was a deeply religious ceremony? This is the most religious, this is the biggest event in the, in the Protestant um, sort of list of, of ceremonies that there is. It doesn't get bigger than this. At its heart, that is an unsquareable circle. Uh, you're right. I mean, the, 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 the coronation ceremony is intrinsically religious, uh, not just that most sacred of moments, the one where they, they put all the screens around the king as he's anointed with the, the, the chrism, but the whole thing. Nevertheless, I, I, I mean, there were overtly uh, religious parts of it, but I think you know even people of no particular faith probably enjoyed uh, the sacred music and the symbolism of him receiving all the various objects uh, meaning various things uh, to him. I, I, I I don't think that really jarred very much. Well, at, at that point, my mum started to um, recall a programme that was in the 1960s and 70s here in the United Kingdom, which was called the Generation Game, where you had to remember a number of things that were on a conveyor belt. And uh, you would get to see the conveyor belt and then they'd take the conveyor belt when you had to get, remember what was on it. And it would sort of start off with orb, scepter, ring, cuddly <laughs> toy, kitchen sink, blender. Um, we, we weren't taking it massively seriously in the, in the Nelson household yesterday. Um, what, did you, what did you find? On, on that point, I think faith doesn't have to be faith in religion for you to buy into this. And I think what the royals do, and I'm by no means a... a Royalist, I, I think that the system of constitutional monarchy can be supported without necessarily being a royalist. But I think if you look at uh, communities of faith, what they have is belonging. And I think that's what the monarchy or yesterday can offer people who don't necessarily subscribe to the faith itself. And that is the sense of community, a sense or a faith and a belief in your national identity. And I think that's a very healthy outlet to have. I think it prevents uh, it slipping into something uglier like nationalism. I think healthy patriotism is a really good quality to have. And to be honest, I think there are many countries around the world that would envy Britain for being able to have that outlet. I mean, you couldn't say that someone like Trump is a, a figure that people can rally around, even in Australia where we have a governor general, and Charles is obviously our, our um, head of state. But people don't really rally around the governor general. Most people wouldn't even know who he was. It's an interesting point, isn't it, to have, you know, regardless of any political situation and turmoil that any country might be going through it. I mean, looking at the UK, it's had its fair share of pumps in the last few years. But to have a monarchy sort of float above it is, is quite solid and reassuring. You don't get that feeling that Charles is going to be grubbing around for your vote in about two years' time. No, that's right. I, I mean, I, I, I believe that the constitutional monarchy that we have actually works very well, uh, rather better than many other cough systems of government around the world that I could point to. Uh, not only does it offer solidity, you're quite right on that, Emma, uh, it offers enormous negative power for as long as the king, for example, is the titular head of the armed forces, nobody else can come in and claim Actually, I run this. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is, having worked inside government, you know, I, I probably see rather more clearly than uh, th th than others, is that heads of state spend enormous amounts of time on ceremonial duties, receiving guests important and not so important from overseas, going around 
cutting ribbons, opening fates, all this kind of thing. Now, under the British system, very large parts of that burden can be farmed out, not just the monarch himself, but to the royal family. Uh, cutting a ribbon at a fate may not be the most intellectually demanding of activities, but it's important to the people there. And for as long as you've got a monarchy, uh, people will understand that although the person you're talking to may not actually exercise political power, they represent something very important. It meant a lot. I, I used to have to deal with a lot of small, rather nervous countries in diplomacy. And when you had their heads of government, or these heads of state coming to the UK, you could almost never get them in front of the Prime Minister. Prime Ministerial time is very, very difficult to achieve. But the palace were always brilliant. You could almost always get an audience with the Queen. And she always played a blinder every time. And it meant so much to these countries. That's interesting because a lot of people in the last couple of days have said, OK, this whole idea of British soft power via the monarchy is no longer that relevant. Actually, we had, people are just curious. And, and a lot of the papers have talked about this. And you know, if you looked at the German newspaper a couple of days ago, they had a front page of Princess Diana on the front page saying she will be the ghost hold, hanging over the whole thing. So there's, there's no fear of criticism. But what you say there, actually, is that the United Kingdom's value through its monarchy is much higher than perhaps we recognise here in the UK itself. Yes, I think that's right. I, I, I spent a while this morning trying to find a radio station that wasn't talking about the coronation. Um, and it took a while. I mean, German radio was full of it, even interrupting some of the traditional Sunday morning religious broadcasts. Finally, I, I settled on Russian state radio, uh, which wasn't <laughs> talking about it at all. Uh, we talk about what he was talking about later. But the world was watching, and this soft power matters. And in terms of Australia's position, we had we had a Republican Prime Minister in the congregation yesterday and, and, and criticism from both right and left for, of Anthony Albanese actually going to, to London. I mean, the way that the Australian Labour government uh, talks about the monarchy, you would never guess that they are Republicans anymore. I mean, they have lent so heavily into, firstly, the death of the Queen when, when Albanese came here. And uh, this week, I mean, he was here for five nights um, half of those nights, we have no idea what he was doing. Like I suspect. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, they've lent very heavily into it. And I would also say on the point about constitutional monarchy, it's not just the British who believe and can see the value in this system. There are realms that clearly still believe this is a good system and worth keeping. And even if it's not perfect and is illogical and somewhat counterintuitive with our modern day expectations and understanding of democracy, it still works. And this is why you're not seeing countries race to hold constitutional uh, change referendums. And Australia, I would firmly put in that basket. I live blogged the coronation yesterday from 6am till 4pm. Congratulations. Had, thank you. We had just as many, if not more, readers than were tuning into the Met Gala live blog. Now, that to me, on a Saturday night in Australia, where this is one of our lowest points for news readership, that says to me, people may be fascinated. They may find it all a bit odd and bizarre, but they're still reading. They still care. They're still interested. And they see a connection because if they didn't, they wouldn't be reading. And I don't think this idea that countries are just going to drift and one day wake up and everyone has reached a nirvana of, hey, we don't need the monarchy anymore, is going to happen. Because people do consider this question. We considered it in 1999. And the people came back and said, no, we'll keep that system. Thank you very much. That might work abroad but from personal experience in London yesterday it was very much the opposite to what you were saying so um, 
my Saturday mornings are generally spent on the side of a football pitch in North London, watching my 11-year-old son fall over and kick and do things, kick a football about. Um, there was a major children's football tournament in North London yesterday, and every parent and every child attended. Not one family said, no, we're keeping our son or daughter back so that they can watch a piece of history, which I found rather baffling. And then it made me think, actually, when you think about it, that the challenge that the, that the royal family probably has now is not to um, spark either anger and resistance or love and joy, but to target the people who just go, actually, I've got football and I feel rather neutral about the royal family because if you get a lot of neutrality, arguably that's the thing that's going to kill it off. I think... I think if the neutrality tips over into active hostility, mm. then you've got a problem. Neutrality in ordinary running, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. You, you, you could say the same about British politics. Uh, the fact that most people don't go around worrying about the state of British democracy, they're much more interested in, in to take your example, in getting their, 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 their child to the football match on time, doesn't mean that the British political system is about to keel over. That's just the fact that you know, other people have, have lives to lead. But that's that hostility moment, isn't it? That you just think that, you know, there's a worry one day that everyone's going to wake up and just look at Charles and go, so why exactly do we have you? But that is ex precisely why it is the obligation of the royal family to continue justifying why it exists. And Princess Anne made a, a really good comment in her interview with Canadian TV this week, where she just said, actually, this system works and what it provides in terms of that stability is not something you find in many other systems. And I think this is really the equation. Put aside Charles, put aside these personalities. This is really the calculation that people make. If we if we change it, and this is the thinking that happened in Australia in 99, if we change it, what do we change it to? How do we get there? Is this going to be more supported by the broad majority of the public than what currently exists? If not, well, then are we opening a Pandora's box that leads to more division and more dispute? Now, I personally think Ireland is a very good model. If you do want to be a Republican, I think it's very easy to look at a country like Ireland and say, this is a great system that works, where the president is ceremonial, he's basically your diplomat in chief, and if he has two nice fluffy dogs, all the better for it. But Short of being able to demonstrate an easy and non-divisive transition at a time when polarisation is probably at its highest, I'm not sure that these arguments that the monarchy is a bit boring or doesn't really suit me uh, necessarily leads to, yes, I absolutely want to chop their heads off in a non-violent way. We do briefly have to mention Princess Anne. You mentioned her as well. Arguably the total star of the show. Absolute standout. Yeah. The fact that she got on horseback after just made my day. And that hat, sensational. And how did she manage to change in that time? It, she must have just flung the robes off and jumped into the air. <laughs> there was, was that. Yeah. It was absolutely that. Literally, we all thought that she'd just gone behind the scenes, whipped everything <laughs> off, got the hat back on and just went like, you know, hold my hat or hold my order of service and leaps on a horse. I mean, who? frankly, I think everybody needs to let, let off steam off that. And what a better way than to ride home in the rain on a horse. Yes, it was brilliant. Uh, absolutely. Without blinking, keep your head up high all the way. Great for Anne. Uh, I, I, I do love Anne, I must say. She's just got this brilliant down-to-earth sense about her. She's great. Thank you. OK, Latika Burke and John Everard, stay with us because we're going to head to Belgrade now to our correspondent Guy Delaunay. A very good morning to you, Guy. How is Belgrade this morning? 
Uh, Belgrade's a bit sad, to be honest with you, Emma. This is uh, following these uh, shootings, these mass shooting events that we've had in the past week, two of them, one in Belgrade itself on Wednesday at a school, and then Thursday we had another mass shooting at a place called Mladenovac, which is about 50 kilometres south of Belgrade. And, you know, if anybody's ever been to Belgrade, they'll know it, it describes itself as the city that never sleeps. You know, never mind New York, it, it, Belgrade's got that title. And this weekend is usually one of the biggest weekends of celebration because uh, there's what they call a slava, a celebration for St. George. All of the families that have St. George as their patron saint would normally be holding three-day parties this weekend. And I can tell you, it's the atmosphere is absolutely flat as a pancake. There's a certain hush over the city, and I'm not imagining it. Everybody I know here, everybody I speak to, feels the same way. So it's, it's not the same Belgrade uh, that I normally uh, come to, and it was my home for five years. It's, it's, a, it's a different place at the moment. What kind of questions are people asking themselves here? Well, I think, you know, is, Bel- is uh, Belgrade, is Serbia, uh, are Serbian schools ever going to be the same again? That, that's, that's the big question that people are asking. Because the, the, the greatest sense you get from everybody is they didn't think that that sort of thing could happen here. It's the sort of thing you see happening in the United States, particularly with regard to the school shooting. There's never been a mass shooting at a school in Serbia before. And so the, the, the question was, you know, what's caused this to happen and what do we do going forward? And I think a lot of people right now are also concerned about any sort of snap decisions which are made in the, in, in, in the aftermath of these shootings about the nature of Serbian society and the controls that need to be put in place and whether that's going to be a trigger for repressive moves by the government in reaction to basically two um, tragedies which, which are not reflective of, of the usual goings of society. It is those isolated incidents, though, that, 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 that generally prompt um, very rapid action. I mean, is there a sense that things are going to change and, and whether the authorities are going to take action as, as, as quickly as perhaps they should? Yes, well, the authorities, and we're talking about the authorities in this case, the the, the highest authority of the lot is President Alexander Vucic, and he's been very quickly coming out saying things like, I asked the Prime Minister to reinstitute the death penalty, but she wasn't having any of it. Um, Some people have said these are quite hot words and and not particularly helpful. Um, He's also talking about extreme restrictions on on gun ownership, which I'll be talking about in more depth on, on The Globalist tomorrow. And again, introducing a police officer to every school in the country, which again raises questions of how do you want your educational institutions to look and feel? Is a school a place of education or is it a place where you need um, armed security at, at the front door? I mean, my children went to school here. They had a, a jolly fellow on the front door called Dragan who welcomed people into school, uh, you know, said hello to everybody, made sure everything was in order. One of those people, one of these, these, those exact kind of people, was shot and killed in the attack on Wednesday. But that's what people are used to having from their school, that sort of figure welcoming them at the door, not an armed police officer. I think everybody needs a dragon in their lives. He sounds amazing. Um, let's move to, on to, uh, to Bosnia, which has finally got a government. It has. Well, this is the Federation region. And uh, I, I think, as John will probably know very well, the, the, the government in, in Bosnia is a, is a complicated thing. I often talk about Bosnia having the most complicated form of government in the world because it has, depending on how you count it, three prime ministers, sorry, three presidents, 14 prime ministers, uh, you know, three different sets of government. And one of these governments is in the Federation. The Federation is roughly one half of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And most of the people who live there are 
are ethnic Croats and Bosniak Muslims. Um, the other half is called Republic of Srpska, and the majority there are, are ethnic Serbs. So the federation ha government has a, a lot of power, a relatively large budget, the national government is quite weak, but somehow the Federation hasn't actually had a functioning government for the past five years. And this is all due to shenanigans going on between the ethno-nationalist parties blocking a government being formed. And finally, the International High Representative Christian Schmidt snapped. He had enough. And in the past few days, he said, I'm breaking this deadlock. Uh, in, in this case, the, the Bosniak uh, vice president of the Federation may no longer have a veto over the formation of the government. And uh, the government, which has been selected by the parliament and the other two presidents, uh, that can go ahead now. And so there is a government there, but there's a lot of controversy as well. John, there's a lot of counting on fingers in terms of who runs what, where, how many of, of, of which department do we have there. But it sounds like that someone just had to sort of absolutely take control of the reins. Well, I, I think there was a certain exasperation about what was going on. Um, and I, I, I think the, the, the Bosniaks in particular will be reading a bit under this sudden and decisive action. But the other point is that, as, as you've heard, they, they have managed to struggle through for five years or so without any real functioning government. And life went on. I mean, there are echoes of Italy here. You know, Italian politics swirls around in this sort of strange parallel universe, and Italian life just goes on. Bosnia appears to develop the same set of reflexes. Uh, the politicians spend their time bickering amongst themselves and not actually doing very much in terms of constructive lawmaking, Bosnia just stumbles along. Would you agree with that, Guy? It never ceases to amaze me how many people can continue their life quite happily without the interference of politicians. I mean, look at Northern Ireland. It's in, in, And I think Belgium was the same, wasn't it? Didn't they have a very long election where they didn't form government and things just went on? The civil service gets much maligned, but actually they do keep the country running while, while politicians argue, don't they? Absolutely. Guy, let's move on to when you were talking about the, the Bosnian regions there. Um, there's, there's to do with people are going car shopping. So while everybody else is just getting on with their lives, some of the politicians are actually going shopping. Yeah, there are some uniquely toxic figures in, in, well, maybe perhaps not uniquely toxic, but certainly highly toxic figures in Bosnian politics. And I would say I think the, the Bosnia does indeed stumble along, and I enjoy my visits to Bosnia and Herzegovina tremendously. Sarajevo is one of my favourite cities. Banja Luka, uh, the largest city in Republika Srpska, again, very beautiful, and the countryside is amazing. The people are wonderful. And yet they're leaving in their droves. I mean, officially, the, uh, the Bosnian population is still north of three million. But unofficially, the UN estimates it's closer to about two and a half million these days. We're losing hundreds of thousands of people over the past decade. And they're going in large part because the government, the government's plural, can't get their act together. And people don't see a future there. And this is reinforced by uh, toxic figures like Milorad Dodik, who is the president of Republika Srpska. And despite Despite the fact that Republika Srpska is massively in debt, so there's more than 3 billion euros in debt with 600 million of loans due to be repaid in the next few months, um, he's put out a tender for a new official car, um, the price of which would be around 150,000 euros, and it mustn't include... They've, they've given the specifications, and these things are usually done to ensure a certain model of car is delivered. And his specifications include massage seats, a fridge and a TV, which I'm sure are all essential uh, for the governance of Republika Srpska. How is, how is he getting away with it? Yeah, well, this is the whole thing with the ethno-nationalists in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And 
yeah, I'm not the, the mistake a lot of people make when they look at the Western Balkans is they try and you know identify who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And it's really not necessarily... We're not in a Minichian situation here. Just because there's a bad guy here doesn't mean there's a good guy there. Um, and the, 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 what they all do is, in these ethno-nationalist parties, the ethno-nationalist leaders, their modus operandi is to divide, rule and profit. And people like Dodik and his party, the SNSD, they sow fear among ethnic Serbs, saying that if they're not in charge, then the Bosniaks are going to be armed to the teeth and they're going to restart a conflict. This is pure fiction, but it's a, it's a fiction that they play up and play on people's fears to persuade them to vote for them. There's also massive patronage, the idea that if you don't vote for Dodik and his party, you won't have a job in public administration or your family member may not. And there's a lot of intimidation in, in that respect. And then there's an awful lot of voter apathy as well. The turnout in elections is very low. The ethno-nationalist parties are the best organised. They can get out the vote better than any of the non-nationalist parties. So all of that contributes to the status quo, and the status quo is contributing to uh, Bosnians leaving in their tens of thousands every year. Finally, Guy, uh, for any of us wishing to depart in the Northern Hemisphere for our holidays this year, Croatia apparently is going to be jam-packed. It is. Um, I would advise not going in July or August, to be okay. frank. I'd, I'd always advise that with, with, with Croatia, but uh, I'd really advise it this year because the signs are it's going to be an absolute bonanza. And when we're talking about about the signs. The figures for April this year, so these have just come out, was that uh, the hospitality industry enjoyed 28% more turnover in April this year compared to the same month last year. And uh, there were some questions about why this is and whether it's just, you know, a bit of ye old price increases and particularly a bit of price gouging following the introduction of the euro as the currency in Croatia. But I think personally, it's going to have a lot to do with Croatia joining the Schengen area. When I, I, I had to drive down from, from Ljubljana to Belgrade the other day, and it's a joy now just to sweep straight through the national border between Croatia and Slovenia, where at peak times in the past, you could have queues which lasted for hours, literally hours. Now, if you're coming in from Austria, Italy, Germany, Czech Republic, and you know you're not going to face one of those Schengen uh, border queues going into Croatia. Of course, you know, lunch in, uh, on uh, the, the Istrian Riviera seems very doable. A few days break there, much more doable. So I think we're going to have an absolutely jam-packed summer season in Croatia this summer, which is uh, lovely for that economy, but perhaps not if you're after a restful time on the Adriatic coast. Guy Delorny, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, back in a moment. Monocle's free to subscribe daily email newsletters, the Monocle Minute and Weekend Edition, deliver headlines and a swathe of recommendations from our editors, correspondents and bureau. You can also browse a menu of radio highlights and Monocle films. Our weekend newsletters deliver great columns from Andrew Tuck on Saturdays and Tyler Brule on Sundays, cultural highs, media diets and far-off newspapers, recipes to cook at home. It's a fun take on weekend living. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute to be part of the conversation.
Welcome back to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. It's 9.46 here in London. And Latika Burke and John Everard are here to, um, going over the coronation. But now let's move to other things. Actually, Latika, just listening to what Guy was saying a moment ago about how Croatia is... I mean, I'm not sure what the Croatian uh, tourism minister would think about him saying, don't come in July and August. <laughs> but you got, to, you got to go there, didn't you, when when no one had, had returned after the pandemic? Well, I'm feeling particularly smug right now, having just listened to Guy Delaunay give us that uh, pro tip on, on travel advice to Europe this year, because Croatia was on my hit list. I'm, I drew up a little list of places I really wanted to visit without the crowds, places I'd put off all my life. Um, and when the pan- when we were just coming out of the pandemic and travel lockdowns and things, I thought, right, now's the time. Because lots of countries in the Southern Hemisphere were still closed to the rest of the world, so they, they weren't travelling. And on that list was Versailles, uh, which I walked into at 9am in the morning and left it around 5pm that afternoon and got photos incredibly with no one there and in lots of great places. Um, Pompeii, which was incredible. I think we saw about maybe max 30 other people on the day we went to Pompeii. And the other one was Dubrovnik. And one of my favourite cities, which I knew since Game of Thrones came out, <laughs> had just been overrun. And I'm very sorry to my American friends who are listening, but overrun by Americans particularly. And I just couldn't think of anything worse than Dubrovnik overrun in the heat. Um, I managed to go in there straight after the pandemic and it was incredible. I have photographs of the main square empty. Um, We got into every restaurant we wanted. It was just absolutely divine. And I may never go back to Dubrovnik because I don't want to spoil how wonderful that was. You'll be feeling minor kicks under the table from my feet at the moment. John, (laughs) John, as a former ambassador, used to sweeping into places and having places sort of opened up for you. What was it like returning to Civvy Street when you had to sort of join the queue? It, actually, I, I didn't really feel the shock too badly. Uh, you, ambassadors do get some doors open for them, but you do quite a lot of sitting around waiting as an ambassador too. Uh, it, you do, know, you, do you wait in nice rooms though? You wait in nice rooms and you get free coffee. So there, there are advantages, but you wait, you wait, and you know, just like you do in City Street. Dubrovnik, I agree with it. You get a great place. I was there under Tito before it was discovered, and that was absolutely amazing. I mean, it was still essentially medieval uh, with, the, with the squares empty because no one went to Dubrovnik in those days yeah. and it was only discovered many, many years later. Yeah, and the great thing too was there were no cruise ships at the time. So yes. that was also really wonderful, going out in a boat to those little islands. And, oh, well, it was just magical. Still, that kick is getting harder. <laughs> uh, right, let's have a look at, uh, and a pinch as well. And let's have a look at the papers uh, and, the, and the, the news that's coming out from Ukraine. Huge amounts of change again. Well, there, there is always tremendous development from week to week in the in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Where are we up to now? I think we've you know, said in the headlines that there was um, Ukraine has sent drones over various uh, occupied regions of, of Ukraine, um, attacking Sevastopol over, overnight and attacking a, a Russian military base. Uh, but what else have you spotted in terms of what's going on? I think the, the, the various big bits of news. I mean, we have uh, had the attempted assassination of one of the most radical and vicious uh, pro-war bloggers, 
Uh, his car was blown up. Uh, he's unconscious at the moment. We don't know whether he'll survive. But the other big news is Bakhmut, which is rapidly changing into a kind of Stalingrad-like uh, iconic city, where it does look as if the Wagner Group actually are serious. They are going to pull out. Uh, they are short of troops in other operations they conduct, notably in Mali. Uh, they are fed up and not getting ammunition. We have that extraordinary video uh, of Prigozhin standing in a, a tower filled full of dead fighters, and they are going to be replaced by the Chechens. Now, this has all kinds of ramifications. If Kodorov puts his Chechen fighters into Bakhmut to try to push for the advance there, then they, he has to withdraw them from elsewhere. And the Chechens in the Russian army are the ones who stop Russian soldiers from running away. If you run away, the Chechens will shoot you. If the Chechens aren't there to shoot deserting Russian soldiers, I think there's a real risk that parts of that front are going to start wobbling. This could be very, very interesting. What's the, the, the reason um, why the, uh, the the Wagner group are are withdrawing um, was I mean you're talking about Prigozhin there the, the head of Wagner saying my lads will not suffer useless and unjustified losses in Bakhmut without ammunition he's he's fed up with the way that things are going aren't he he's fed up that they've not won and he's fed up that clearly the Russian authorities are not giving them um, the, the, what they need. Yes, absolutely. And he's been saying this very vocally for a very long time. Of course, the Russian authorities' problem is they don't have that ammunition. Russia is desperately short of everything from missiles down to individual automatic rifle rounds. Um, Prigozhin can scream all he likes. They can't give him what they don't have. Uh, but also, there's been intense rivalry between the Wagner Group and the traditional Russian military throughout this conflict, with the Wagner Group desperate to show that they are the ones doing the actual fighting, whereas the Russian army uh, just sit and, and, and hold a line. Uh, I suspect there'll be quite a lot of very senior Russian generals who will not be so very sorry to see Prigozhin remove himself from the scene. Who is left there? Because we've, we've lost so many senior figures in the Russian military in the last couple of, well, ever since the war has started. One wonders how many generals there are left. They've got a good few. Russia never was short of generals. I mean, it's, the, the ratio of generals to soldiers in the Russian army always was cough just a little bit higher than it was in, in, in other armies, so they had few spared. But Shoigu and Gerasimov are still around and are still issuing orders. Notably, neither have been to the front for a very long time. Remember those assassinations in the early weeks of the war where various Russian generals were picked off by Ukrainian snipers? They don't seem to want to risk that, which must be picked up by the Russian troops. Uh, after all, Zelensky goes right to the front and cheers on the Ukrainian troops and the Russians must be thinking, OK, where are our guys? Tatika. Yeah, I think, look, all of this come, it, it does feel extremely significant what is happening, this open feuding between Wagner and the Russians and one can only hope that this does point to wider problems about weapons supply, morale in their own troops and forces and this you know, hope that we would all have that perhaps the Russians could actually just collapse on the battlefield. Now, it's not a likely scenario, but it is certainly one that many war experts think is possible. The other thing, of course, is the backdrop to this is we're waiting for the, the long-awaited spring offensive from the Ukrainians. And you have the Ukrainian government out there every other day telling us, please do not get your hopes up. Do not raise your expectations about what we might be able to achieve in the spring offensive when it starts. And it still hasn't started. And so everyone is waiting for this. We understand there are some more troops to be uh, to, f to complete their training here in the UK before they do head back to Ukraine and start. But there's a lot riding on that counteroffensive. And if Ukraine 
can't achieve what the West, particularly the United States, hopes and expects, you will, I think, start to see that conversation change about, well, how long do we want to keep funding and fighting this war? Is it better that we bring it to a negotiating table? And you'll see forces inside Europe also arguing that. So there's an enormous amount riding on the Ukrainians too. Um, but what is playing out with Wagner here, and particularly in Bakhmut, which if you see any aerial shots of, of Bakhmut in the last 24, 48 hours, I mean, it is... There's nothing left. It is a hellfire. Literally, there is no other way to describe it. It looks like what uh, young Catholic me was taught, what hell would be a, a ceaseless pit of fire. Just let's go back briefly to, to the Prigozhin statements. I mean, some experts have suggested that actually um, never take anything that Prigozhin says at face value um, because their role in intelligence and operations is so crucial that, uh, that obviously just don't believe him. But also, could Prigozhin actually turn round to the Kremlin and say, we're going because one suspects that Vladimir Putin might have other ideas and those are the ones that will be will actually happen. Yes, there will be a certain amount of, uh, shall we say, the interesting conversations in the Kremlin about what happens. Uh, but the Russian army, I suspect, will be delighted to see the back of Wagner and they will be telling Vladimir Putin that, uh, provided they think they can actually plug the gaps. Uh, can the Kremlin in any case tell Wagner what to do? That the relationship, the power relationship really is very unclear. Prigozhin has uh, paddled his own canoe, so to speak, for the duration of this conflict, and I suspect we'll see, see more to come. And, and that, I think, is really important because we're seeing for the first time really since this war began public fighting, public jostling over the power reins, and that's a dynamic we haven't seen. And for those in the school of thought that this war can only end if Putin is removed in whatever way, either by the Russians themselves or or some external attempt, um, then this, uh, I think, really does feel quite significant that there are people already jostling for that power. Yes, I think it's important that we do not have a Putin problem, we have a Russia problem. Be very careful what you ask for. I agree if- 100%, John, but there are people of that prior school of thought. Finally, let's move on to uh, a last story that you wanted to talk about, John, which involves a butterfly. Yes, the unfortunate new discovered butterfly named after the great evil force in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, Sauron. I mean, what a rotten thing to do to the unfortunate <laughs> butterfly that gets no no choice at all in what it gets called. From here on, everybody seeing it will only ever see the eye of Sauron on its markings. Poor creature. Tell us, tell us this poor little thing. Um, what Pity the poor butterfly. Why why is it called Sauron? Because if you look at the markings on the butterfly's wings, there is a shape that looks very much like the eye of Sauron, the kind of extended eye uh, that you see in all the official illustrations of the Lord of the Ring. And clearly, whoever named this butterfly was a Tolkien fan. Uh, what do you think of this poor butterfly? I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm not entirely sure it knows or cares, John, but I'll... I'll I'll extend my sympathies as much as I can. Well, maybe it's the most menacing butterfly in in the butterfly universe. I mean, Sauron was someone to be greatly feared for three of those books. I mean, I read them as a young child. and Uh, Have you read them? Yes, I absolutely have read them. Have you read read them, them, John? Yes, as a child. They need a good edit, but they're... They're brilliant. I got halfway through book two and just thought, I can't do that anymore. Okay. Even if the butterflies don't know or care, 
bad naming. I'm old enough to have worked with a lot of quite competent, respectable German diplomats whose parents, for all the wrong reasons, gave them the name Adolf. <laughs> oh, uh, my goodness, yes. I, I mean, uh, other names. Uh, the, uh, the the mother of the captain of the U.S. Air Force uh, bomber that dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, what does she think when she discovered that her son had named his aircraft after her, Enola Gay? Was she ever consulted? I kind of doubt it. It is very strange. Latika Burke, John Everard, thank you so much for joining me in the studio for today's programme. And my thanks also to my other guests, Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul and Guy Delorny in Belgrade. That's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Many thanks to the producer, Desiree Bandley, and our studio managers, Callum McLean and Tamsin Howard. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week. But for now, from me, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. 